Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Progressive News Network. It is Sunday, May 10, 2020. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And you know what? You might not have kids. I don't have kids. But listen, I got a couple of uh, dogs that I treat like children. So I think that that qualifies. Um, we also found out this this week that we have rats. We have rats all over our house. I reported last week that we very gingerly did a little trap and caught a little, little rodentia, cute little citrus rat, relocated her way out to a, a, a utilities easement where there's a lot of wildlife. Um, come to find out our house has been chosen as one in the neighborhood that is a, a very attractive to rodentia. And the reason why that is, and any homeowners out there, you need to know this, uh, it's happening this time of year, but it's also, we had a lot of houses in our neighborhood replace their roofs with hail damage. And it seems like that has relocated some, uh, let's say, wildlife populations. So uh, this was a very exciting week. We had uh, people come and seal up our attic and, uh, you know, we're trying to, uh, like St. Patrick, we're trying to drive the uh, the uh, a, a certain life form out of our particular spaces without doing too much damage to anyone around the neighborhood. What set that off for us, and I want to just mention this because I think it's an important issue uh, and there's an interesting story. What set this off is our neighbors two doors down, their house burned this week, and it was horrifying. A young family, two young kids, just moved in not too long ago. They had replaced their HVAC, and uh, that's where the fire started. That's all I know at this point. Um, The fire was associated with the HVAC. A lot of times what happens when you do contracting work, uh, you put more uh, stress on your wiring, on your electrical than needs to be. Well, that's what happened to these guys. And it was absolutely horrific. But let me tell you about what wasn't horrific and what was really uplifting is, you know, we're all home in the lockdown. And as soon as people smelled uh, smoke and uh, we, we were out there getting people out of the house and the whole neighborhood came to comfort the family. And not only that, but another neighbor set up a GoFundMe and blows my mind, but that GoFundMe is at $18,000 right now. Just amazing. Just fabulous. Uh, That is going to cover some deductibles. It's going to help them uh, bridge the gap. Uh, with some personal costs, you know, for, for housing and stuff. And that's going to, that's going to help a lot. And that just sort of underscores the, uh, the importance of, you know, know your neighbors, pull together, watch out for each other. If you smell smoke, run next door and check it out. 
make sure everyone's okay because that's what got them out of the house. The smoke alarm went off and I've done this. We're like, hey, shut that thing off. <laughs> what the hell? That's annoying. Anyhow, just a short uh, observation from this week, a little uplifting, a little, uh, you know, random. But what's not random, no, actually it is pretty random. Our uh, show for tonight, we've got Harry Reid wants to talk about aliens. We've got Russiagate in ashes and no one notices. We've got Mother's Day and Welfare Queens. We have Janine Moloff on uh, Trump ignoring medical guidelines on SARS-CoV-2. And Rick Spizak interviews Matthew Schwartz, who is with the uh, South Florida Wildlands Association. And it seems like there is a Hold on to your pants here. A big environmental win in Florida to talk about. So we've got uh, Rick Spizak reporting from the road at the top of the hour with some very good news. So, you know, I feel like I feel like here we are. We've got a, a couple of, uh, you know, kind of heart heartwarming stories, even though that house fire was terrible. It's amazing that how people pull together. So, you know, I I'm, can't help but think that that's a, uh, a good story, a heartwarming story for, for the week. Uh, you know what? We haven't done in a while. We haven't heard from the Daughters of Isis. Let's see what they're up to. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of aromacology, indigenous scents representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest, the authentic moment, and to heal the Earth Mother. Daughtersofisis.com Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's Daughtersofisis.com Check that out, Daughtersofisis.com Big supporters of the show. And, you know, that reminds me, uh, if you want to support the show, uh, there's a lot of ways to do it. You can go to pnngo.com. There is a uh, donate button there. I'll be adding some more options on that as uh, as we slide into early summer, uh, trying to upgrade ways that people can participate. But I also want you guys to know that Progressive News Network is here for you to promote whatever it is, your small business, your uh, uh, candidacy, your campaign, whatever it is that you're doing, give us a shout. We will um, make sure that you are, uh, that you have a spot that, that we run on the show every week. Um, always an option. Just reach out. All right, let's get into it. Um, you know, it's, it's actually been a while since we've done my opening. So let's just uh let's just give it a listen. all the way down to the to the nits and the grits. Um, 
let's start out with Mother's Day. Mother's Day has to be one of the most conflicted days of the year for me. Uh, And I, I tweeted about this earlier, you know, mothering does not come with a handbook. And some of us were, were blessed with uh, amazing parental units. Other of us might have uh, provided the the parenting to our parental units. I myself had three mother figures. I had a grandmother, I had a biological mom, and I had an aunt. And I got to tell you, it took all three of them to bring this, all of this amazing person into the world. Um, uh, you know, it, it might not take a village, but it, it definitely takes an extended family sometimes. Uh, one of the things that was really important to my family as I was growing up was a program, a federal program called Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC. You might have heard of it. Uh, if you're a little bit older, if you came along in the 90s, then you might not have heard of it because the Clinton administration replaced AFDC, which was a uh, cash program for um, uh, mothers and children uh, to be able to live uh, in economic downturns, in the case of unemployment, in the case of underemployment, and so on and so forth. In my case, uh, I lived with my grandparents. I was adopted by my grandparents. My grandfather had had a serious heart attack. There's little heart attacks, and then there's serious heart attacks. He had a serious heart attack. Um, And right after that happened, we fell into a Social Security donut hole. They should have been, uh, they were right at the age where they could have started uh, collecting Social Security. And there was some sort of glitch in the program where there was a group of people who weren't getting the benefits that they needed because of what was called a donut hole, uh, which was, you know, bad administration and bad accounting. So along comes, and and this was really amazing that we could you know, make ends meet like this. My biological mom came and stayed with us and she had AFDC uh, with my half brother. And so we just kind of blended all of this family together and, 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 and kept it rolling. Like we were still uh, food insecure most of the time, uh, but we could keep the lights on. We could keep the uh, heat on and we could make ends meet. Now, in 1996, along came the Clinton administration with their uh, let's end welfare as we know it. And um, and they did. And they replaced it with the, the TAMP program, which is temporary assistance that does nothing for anybody, essentially. And, you know, one of the biggest proponents of uh, getting rid of, of, of welfare was none other than Joe Biden. All right. Joe Biden, who was a senator at the time, uh, warned that welfare moms driving luxury cars and leading wealthy lifestyles uh, were, were uh, you know, just just like Ronald Reagan said, you know, they were like the probably the worst thing ever to happen. Uh, never mind the fact that that just didn't exist. There was a there was a, a um, 
a lot of controversy over the original uh, welfare queen and this notion that that uh, that uh, people were in general treating the program as a um, as a jubilee or as a free for all. But it was in the interest of certain neoliberal, you know, this this uh, emerging neoliberal uh, group in Washington D.C. They thought it was in the interest, and in their interests particularly, to put as much pressure downward onto people who had no means of taking care of themselves and no way to get ahead. And so they they latched on to this welfare queen driving luxury cars kind of narrative in order to turn public opinion against AFDC and to decimate the program. Yeah, 1996, a lot of things happened, as a matter of fact. Not only did we end welfare as we know it, you know, and, and leave people out in the cold. I don't know how folks get along right now, to tell you the truth. Um, but we also uh, consolidated the media with the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which uh, uh, Al Gore um, was a point person on. You know, that's what gave us what is it? What is it now? Four or five large media companies that own all of the discourse, all of the major mainstream discourse that goes on in the in, in the United States. And, you know, this is why and this is how there can be a Fox News that is an arm of the Republican National Committee and then a an MSNBC that is an arm of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. And then you've got CNN, who's just sort of over there all the time, like kind of waving their arms, going, look at me, look at me, I can I can do that game too. Uh, but what you don't have are media outlets, large media outlets that talk about issues that are important to regular people. Yeah. So we get a lot, we get a lot of this um, uh, engineered discourse, the kind of discourse, you know, where, where you can talk about welfare queens driving luxury cars and no one is going to challenge you. No one's going to come back at you on that. Um, Because there's no other voices out there in the media. Now, things changed when the internet came along. And, you know, we had a growth in in independent media, we had a growth in blogging, we had a growth in in the internet 2.0 with social media, and that sort of thing. But I think one of the things, one of our takeaways from the 2020 Democratic presidential primary is that none of that really can stand up to the power that is wielded by the big media companies via that 1996 Telecommunications Act. Now, pivoting back to welfare mothers driving luxury cars, this is something that Joe Biden didn't just uh, latch onto in 1996 when Bill Clinton and Al Gore were pushing it. He had been on this since uh, about 19, at least 1988, when he wrote a column in, what is this? U.S. Senator Joe Biden, Weekly Report. I'll find the uh, 
I'll find the original. It looks like the Washington Post. Welfare system about to change. This is a column. This is a, a, a personal opinion that U.S. Senator Joe Biden wrote about the welfare system. And he starts out, here's his lead. We are all too familiar with the stories of welfare mothers driving luxury cars and leading lifestyles that mirror the rich and famous. Whether they are exaggerated or not, these stories underlie a broad social concern that the welfare system has broken down, M-dash, that it only parcels out welfare checks and does nothing to help the poor find productive jobs. Now, notice what's going on here. Uh, it only parcels out welfare checks and does nothing to help the poor find productive jobs. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my family. Pivot back. We're going to pivot back. We're going to talk about my family. My biological mother had a, an advanced degree in uh, in uh, French literature, for God's sakes. She also had a cosmetology degree. She was very often employed. But the thing is, people are complicated and life is complicated. And uh, she suffered from all different kinds of mental health issues. She suffered from uh, uh, substance abuse issues where she was self-medicating. She was unable to keep a job. Absolutely unable. I mean, it would, it, she could keep her, 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 herself together for six months and everything would look fine. And then all of a sudden it would just drop off the, the end of the universe. And I think anyone who has had people with mental health issues in their family is familiar with this uh, cycle, you know, where things are rolling along pretty good and the the family member that you're concerned with um, is chugging right along, but they hit the wall and then they just fall right off. And that's, that's what she would do over and over and over again. And that's why I was adopted by my grandparents. Um, this is a common story. I'm not telling you this to be like, oh, that's so terrible. That happened to Brooke, you know? No, 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 no. I was really, really lucky that I had uh, that extended family, that I had the grandparents, and that I later had an aunt and uncle who stepped in and, and did things. But what was horrifying was the life that a person like my biological mother had to look forward to. Um, very often she, she couldn't get Medicaid. As a, mat as a matter of fact, she uh, left her home state to go to other places where she could access medical care and the, the medical care that she needed. Uh, and, you know, without being able to settle in with a steady income, it was always impossible to maintain that, that you know, getting, having her foot in the door with, uh, with medical help and mental health help. And so it was just, it was just, you know, my childhood was just one after another of, you know, oh, she's doing great. Ah, she's not doing so good. Oh, she's going to move back in. Ah, she's going to move back out. Uh, this is what happens. This isn't just dysfunctional families. This is just life. This is just how people are. In families, you're going to have people who go to 
a university and they're going to get their PhDs and they're going to be, you know, amazing middle-class families like my aunt and uncle. And then you're going to have the people in the families who don't do so well. And there's reasons why they don't do so well that are just outside of what is, you know, expected. And when you look at the way that Joe Biden, for instance, Democrat in name only. Sorry, y'all. Sorry, y'all. I know a lot of y'all tune into this show because you're you're fans of the uh, Democratic Party. But you know, I, I, let's let's be real. Let's let's be real about what we're talking about here. Someone who in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was banging the drum about welfare queens and their Cadillacs, you've got a Democratic senator in there who, by the way, has a big history of uh, questionable judgment when it comes to issues of race, you know, uh, uh, buttressing those kinds of arguments. Now, you know, I was a, I, and continue to be a white girl. <laughs> as bad as this was, you know, in, in, in a household that is like quote unquote privilege for being white, the way that this hit communities of color was devastating, okay? And this was going on at the same time that Joe Biden was was pushing the uh, um, crime bill, you know, which started off mass incarceration. So, you know, the 90s were not all, uh, you, you know, uh, shits and giggles for for everyone you know we we had the the clinton administration ushered in <clears throat> the dot-com bubble which worked out pretty nicely for people for a while you could if you were into certain forms of uh, software development and networking doing that sort of thing at the time uh, early web design, you could support a family on your income. Uh, it was a pretty decent, you can make a pretty decent middle-class income. But the trade-off that wasn't necessary to get there was to screw poor people and communities of color as hard as they freaking could. Yeah, And you were damn lucky if you were able to pull yourself up out of that. And, you know, that's uh, at the time a lot of people got their uh, Microsoft uh, networking uh, network administrators certificate, you know, in the hopes that you could do something that uh, um, could support your family at a time also when NAFTA was sending all of our manufacturing jobs overseas. Ta-da. You know, you wonder why there's a, a, a an opioid crisis and you wonder why, um, you know, the the heartland is hollowed out to the point where uh, they, they look at um, many in the heartland look at Donald Trump as a refreshing voice. You know, this is why. This is why. This is because our party has behaved like this. Um, which reminds me, I want to tell you guys real quick about. Um, we're not going to talk about aliens yet. Um, I want to tell you about a very exciting project that I just learned about this week. That actually just launched this week. It's the. Um, Democratic. Policy 
The Democratic Policy Center, at Dem Policy on Twitter. Go there and give them a follow because um, this is a, a really good organization that is being headed up by uh, Andrew Perez, who was uh, part of MathLite, might still be. Uh, the bio here for the Democratic Policy Center is big corporations control policy. The Democratic Policy Center is fighting back. Please support us to get started. They also have a website at dempolicy.com. One of the reasons why they pushed forward to launch early, they weren't planning on launching this early, is because of the, the bailout that is looming for lobbyists. Here we are in the midst of a, of, of a global pandemic and uh, U.S. workers maybe have received $1,200 to tide us over for rent and food and this and that. At a time when we've, we've shed, we're going on shedding 30 million jobs. And our own democratic house is pushing measures to bail out lobbyists and not bail out, we still don't have any kind of, you know, healthcare that we can access with regard to coronavirus. We don't have any kind of uh, uh, UBI or, 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 or monthly, you know, way to meet the bills. If you live in a state like Florida with a completely broken unemployment system, then even unemployment isn't working for you. So, you know, we're getting ready to open up the country again from uh, from being in quarantine, from being in, in, in a light lockdown. It's not like we ever locked down the way Italy did or the way that um, China did. We're getting ready to open back up after that. And uh, what's going to happen is very predictable. We're going to see a soaring death rate. We're going to see, you know, there's there's been a calculus made, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, all these uh, cartoon characters that are running things. They've decided that, sure, we can lose another 100,000 people, maybe 200,000 people, uh, because, heck, we want to go to Target. Heck, we want to go to Walmart. You know, we want to go to concerts and restaurants and have people wait on us and stuff. And that's super important to have people wait on us. And, uh, and, and that's more important, apparently, than uh, workers being able to live. So, we are in a period of mask off, total mask off. If there was ever any question as to whether uh, anyone was on our side in Washington, like I'm just not even seeing it right now. And we're even seeing people like AOC and Ilhan Omar uh, um, abandon some of the principles that we uh, adhere to. So things are happening. That's kind of a bummer. But that that's why I think it's super important to pay attention to some other stories. So that's not the only thing 
that we are uh, focusing on this week. It's super important and we need to be aware of it, but hey, let's, let's, uh, let's also turn our attention to uh, some, some other stories that are um, in the mix. Uh, coming up, we've got Harry Reid and Aliens. I'd enjoy this until then. Commission and chairing the commission is a 
BFD. Yeah, that's uh, you're dealing with some some big money. And if you've been watching Ozark, like everybody in the freaking universe, uh, this this uh, during lockdown, if you've been watching that, you might be aware that people who are on gaming commissions have a lot of power. Harry Reid had a lot of power before he became powerful, apparently. Um, neither here nor there. Moving on. Uh, this article says that Harry Reid has done more than any other lawmaker to support the search for UFOs, which he says doesn't mean a lot. So why should we listen to him? What's, what, what's going on here? It doesn't mean a lot. He says, quote, the sad part about it is no one else has done anything. So saying I've done more than anybody is really no big deal. And he said this to a motherboard uh, public uh, motherboard magazine, I guess the the website. Uh, they have a, a podcast called Cyber, uh, CY Cyber. Um, he continues, "quote There's no one doing anything, and that's too bad." Reed was the architect. Now, this is what's important. You guys might have heard of uh, Tom DeLonge, Blink-182 guy, starting the To the Stars Academy, and they're the ones who had the um, videos, the Go Fast and the Tic Tac video, that just a week or so ago were finally confirmed by the Navy that they were actual Navy videos. So they've been out there for a couple of years circling around. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I saw Will Menneker has a little uh, side project called the Gray Pilled. And he was interviewing I or having a discussion with, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to mess up her name. So I'll take a break in a while and, and look it up. But he had a, an interesting conversation with uh someone like myself who's uh, taken a, an interest in these stories um, in the long term. So like I've been following this sort of thing since the uh, mid nineties and, you know, taken a, a deep dive into that. And I'll tell you why, I'll tell you what happens because I think it's interesting and I think it's important. So I was, uh, I was at my first real job at an advertising agency. And there was an older woman, um, in her, in her sixties, who was our copy person. She was our, she was our staff writer, very good at her craft, very good at what she did. And we're sitting around talking as you do at, at work. And she happened to mention that she believed in UFOs. And I was just like, it kind of took me aback because it kind of came out of nowhere. And I was like, I didn't even look up from what I was doing. And I, and I said, gosh, you believe in that shit? Like, didn't even think about it. Hadn't really thought about it prior to that. And as soon as those words left my mouth, I immediately regretted it. Because, of course, she does. She wouldn't have said that. And that was a terrible thing to say to somebody. And it weighed so hard on me, so heavy on me, that I, I said, you know what? I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, you know, get myself up to speed and apologize and carry on this conversation. That's how a lot of this started. Um, important to be gentle with people when they are sharing things like that, that are important to them. And if they're not important to you, just shut the hell up. <laughs> just shut the hell up and listen to them and then, you know, 
keep keep it keep it down. But I was young and you know just just full of myself and you know that's one of the things that that uh, that I regret. But it led to me diving into this material because I was like, okay, you know, if I think I'm such a smarty pants, then you know, let's see how much of a smarty pants I am. So I dug in, and uh, you know, it's interesting. It's also it's also a decent respite from the hard news that we consume constantly and the political horse race and the political back and forth that we are immersed in usually. So, you know, it's something that I, that I um, delve into with intent, with intention, you know, it's part of it's uh, keeping sane and part of it's uh, just entertainment. Now, this Harry Reid story, I find to be quite entertaining. But there's a lot of meat on this bone. So it's, it's entertaining plus. Uh, Reid was the architect of two Pentagon programs designed to look for and study UFOs. Might not have known that. Uh, the two programs called Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which is uh, ATIP, and the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Applications Program. These two programs had $22 million in funding between 2007 and 2012. Now, $22 million over the course of five years is not a drop in the bucket. And I guarantee you that that money was matched by quite a bit of, of private money. You know, otherwise there's there, there's no point, absolutely no point in in endeavoring into this because it's just not enough money. Um, they ran this funding, and that's interesting. They they talk about that this in the in the article. They ran this funding through a congressional quote black budget, uh, and that money went to largely to a company called Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies which worked uh, alongside the Pentagon on this. Now, you might be, you might be aware of uh, Bigelow, Robert Bigelow, from, if you watch uh, the History Channel, there's a show, something, something about the Skinwalker Ranch. Bigelow owned the Skinwalker Ranch. It's a place where a lot of very bizarre, uh, what seems to be natural phenomena or uh, congenital phenomena. It seems to be a place where there's been phenomena going on for a very long time. It's uh, even woven throughout uh, uh, the the lore of um, First Nations out there. So the Utes and the Navajo actually uh, encountered the Skinwalker, and that's where the name Skinwalker actually comes from. let me play this for you, just to give you a, a, a sense of what we're talking about. This is um, this is Robert Bigelow on 60 Minutes from the end of May in 2017, I think. I'll, I'll find that. Sorry for the paper noise again. Here we go. Do you believe in aliens? I'm absolutely convinced. That's all there is to it. Do you also believe that UFOs have come to Earth? There has been and is an existing presence, uh, an ET presence. And I spent millions and millions. I probably spent more 
as an individual than anybody else in the United States has ever spent on this subject. Is it risky for you to say, you know, in public that you believe in UFOs and aliens? I don't care. You don't worry that some people will say, did you hear that guy? He sounds like he's crazy. I don't care. Why not? It's not going to make a difference. It's not going to change reality of what I know. Do you imagine that in our space travels we will encounter other forms of intelligent life? You don't have to go anywhere. You can find it here? Yeah. <laughs> Where exactly? It's just like right under people's noses. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Do you believe in aliens? Okay, so... There's a lot there. First, uh, Bigelow says he's spent more. He has personally spent more money on these projects than anyone else. He also ran NIDS, which was the uh, National Institute for Discovery Science, uh, which wasn't just UFOs. NIDS had to do with uh, um, natural phenomena, such as what they find out at the uh, Skinwalker Ranch, what I'm calling natural, at least, which is very crazy and not that natural, but it doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't seem to be hoaxing and it doesn't seem to be uh, uh, stuff that hasn't been there for a long time. So I'm calling it natural, natural esque or whatever. So he says that he's spent more money than anyone else. You, you, you put that with the, uh, claim that Harry Reid or the, or, or the data point that, that Harry Reid made sure that this program had $22 million in black budget money for five years between 2007 and 2012. Uh, this is one of the sources of private money, okay? When I said that there's likely private money, this is one of the sources, not the only source, one of the sources. Now, the other thing that he says in here that is just kind of crazy is... Um, he doesn't care, so 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 Bigelow doesn't care if um, if he gets in trouble for talking openly about uh, aliens and UFOs. Also, very similar to what Harry Reid says in this article and what he said before. And he goes on to say, "No, let's just let's just listen to this one more time. Let's just let's just burnish this in our in our ears for a second. I don't care. You don't worry that some people will say that you hear that guy he sounds like he's crazy. I don't care. Why not? It's not going to make a difference. It's not going to change reality of what I know. Do you imagine that in our space travels we will encounter other forms of intelligent life? You don't have to go anywhere. You can find it here. Yeah. <laughs> Where exactly? It's just like right under people's noses. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Right under your noses, y'all. <laughs> right under your noses. So um, I'm going to just go out on a, on a limb and say that if you live in Nevada, it's really under your noses. Um, and I've always had a sneaking suspicion that there are plenty of people that I knew that could have been um, absolute space aliens. Uh it used to be a thought experiment that I like to do uh, when I was in big groups of people, you know, like you're in big groups of people, you know, a couple thousand, 10, 20,000 people like at a, at a concert or a sporting event and think to yourself, is every single one of these people, people, you know, 
might they be? I mean, since there's so many people here, I mean, chances are if there are, like Bigelow says, uh, you know, these folks under our noses, then heck, you never know. You could be the next time you go to a football game, huh? whenever that's going to be, uh, you could be sitting next to uh, someone with a radically different um, approach or, or pedigree or whatever. Uh, uh, don't come from here. Or maybe they do come from here. Maybe they do come from here. That's another uh, theory that these guys aren't so much from off planet or maybe not all of them are, but, you know, some of them have just sort of been around for, for a very long time. And, have made this little part of our solar system home. Uh, deep dive. That's a deep dive right there. Let's get back to Harry Reid. Um, this article is actually following up on uh, the disclosure, and I'm using that word uh, advisedly. It's following up on the disclosure from, from the Navy videos. Um, and Reed says, I look at it this way, quote, the world as we know it today is extremely large and it can't, it's so big, I can't comprehend it. And I think that we as human beings have to be a little short-sighted if we think we're the only species out in the entire universe. In the entire universe, there is for sure more than one species. Well, now, that's Harry Reid. Bigelow is saying there's for sure more than one species like hanging out like right now this minute. And he also said, and I think that this is a little ominous, Bigelow also said it just doesn't matter. He had this kind of nihilism about, you know, there, there's this sort of dark spin on what he was saying. And, uh, you know, maybe not everybody is uh, friendly space brothers. Now, maybe some aren't, maybe some aren't. Who knows? I wish these guys would talk a little bit more about it. I would like to have more information. Uh, Harry Reid also says, I think we need to fully understand this and have no boundaries on what we look for. And I repeat now for the second or third time that people should not be afraid. I think that too many of my legislative friends are afraid to go into this because someone will think that there's some kind of nutcase. But I went into it, and I don't think it hurt me politically. Well, Ari Reid, you went into it after you left the Senate, okay? You went into it while you were in the Senate to shuffle a little bit of money over to Bigelow, but it was in the black budget, and nobody knew about it until after you were out of the Senate. And I would love to know if this had anything to do with his black eye that he got from his exercise equipment on New Year's Day. Um, so we got the videos that's covered in this. Uh, other things that I that I wanted to pull out is um, he says, this is Harry Reid. He says, even some of my staff told me to stay away from this. I never looked back, though. It was something I was interested in. I thought it was something that government should be involved in. He continues, I, of course, followed it very closely and talked to people that worked um, that worked there, uh, but I made the decision that it was very difficult for me. Oh, he's talking about Skinwalker here. Uh, he never went to Skinwalker because he said he was a government employee, and that just doesn't make any sense. If you live in Nevada, uh, where Skinwalker is located in Utah is 
like a day trip. That's not a big deal. You just drive up there. It's not uh, anyway. So, but for whatever reason, he felt like Skinwalker was um, uh, not a good place for him to be seen at. And, uh, and Reed continues that while the program was ongoing, he never pushed to make its findings public. And he said that he believed the Pentagon or National Security Agency should be doing this sort of work because he wasn't sure whether a civilian agency such as NASA could do it. And let's be honest, NASA is not that public uh, or civilian. Um, it really does the, the bidding of the military and then and um, corporations. It was set up to do that. Um, but he does believe to this day that studying UFOs is important government work that should continue to be funded. Okay, so I've mentioned this before. We've talked about this with regard to ATIP. Um, I think what's going on here, uh, There's there's been a lot of crash retrievals that uh, serious researchers have been talking about for decades. There's the Aztec crash. There's the Corona crash. There's the Roswell crash. There's a um, Cape Girardeau. There's been a lot of lore about crashes in the United States that date back to the um, early mid 20th century. Now, if that's the case, and if that's if there were materials retrieved, I think the most obvious thing going on here is that those materials have been in black research, in, in, in research that is not public. And what they're, what, what's uh, at issue here is whether or not they can move that technology and those materials and that science out of the black budget world into the, the, into the light. You know, just to, to, to either bring it to market or to bring it to uh, um, into the discourse so that it's usable. And um, I don't think there's anything nefarious there, but I do. I do kind of cast a, um, a sideways glance at this whole, you know, they walk among us. This kind of I walked with a zombie thing. Uh, we'll see. I will if there's any space aliens or earth aliens out there listening to me right now, um, send me a, send me a, 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 a text. We have a chat function. If you're listening to this on the, if you're listening to this live and you're on the blog talk radio website, there should be a little chat function and I've never used it. So, um, you know, check that out. See, see if that's a, See if that's something that, that you can use. And you can always reach out to me on Twitter. My DMs are open, so um, feel free to uh, just be cool. Be cool about it, all right. Um, coming up in a second, a little bit on Russiagate. disclosure, we got release of documents from the House Intelligence Committee 
there's a, a, a big document dump and a lot of people have been going through. And of course, there were some interviews in that document dump that were prioritized over others. And this report is about one of those interviews that was prioritized. And, and we're talking about uh, Sean Henry, who is a protege of former FBI director Robert Mueller and went on to work with CrowdStrike and he was involved in this whole uh, Russiagate took them uh, DNC email thing from the beginning. Fascinating story. Uh, again, you're not going to hear on that. You're not going to hear this on mainstream media. You're not going to hear this uh, talked about very much because it uh, contradicts the whole Russiagate, the whole Russiagate story. This one little interview that they kept under wraps for all these years since 2017. Um, this contradicts everything that they pushed out through Rachel Maddow and pushed out through MSNBC and so on and so forth. All right, so this is a really good article published on my birthday, May 9. Ray McGovern, this is uh, consortium news, good old consortium news. Ray McGovern's a, 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 a decent guy. He works with uh, Tell the World, a publishing ministry of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. I don't know what that is, but it sounds like, a, you know, one of these like good works kind of thing. He's a former CIA analyst, his retirement, he's in retirement now. And he co-founded Veterans Intelligence Professional for, for Sanity. One more time. Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, uh, which is VIPS, which had a lot to say about the DNC emails and how they were uh, given over to WikiLeaks. Now, this story, uh, Ray McGovern New House documents so further doubt that Russia hacked the DNC. What? Oh, my God. If Russia didn't hack the DNC, then what are we even talking about with active measures and Russia's coming to get you and, you know, Russian bots and, oh, my God, did Tara Reid talk about Russia at one point? Blah, 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 blah. Well, if it turns out, that Russia wasn't, you know, all up in our business about these emails and wasn't hacking us and wasn't, uh, you know, into these uh, computers. If it turns out that that's the case, there is no Russiagate story at all. You know, this is the core. This is the core. This is the business. This is the this is everything at the middle. And it's gone. It's ashes. It's blown away. And no one's going to talk about this. But I'm going to talk about it because y'all need to y'all need to hear about it. For two and a half years, the House Intelligence Committee knew that CrowdStrike didn't have the goods on Russia and now the public needs to know too. Two pillars of Russiagate crumble. Uh, House Intelligence Committee documents released Thursday revealed that the committee was told two and a half years ago that the FBI had no concrete evidence that Russia hacked the Democratic National Committee computers to filch, what a great word, to filch the DNC emails published by WikiLeaks in July 2016. They had no concrete evidence. <clears throat> they were just speculating, essentially. In this article, 
The now buried closed door testimony came on December 5, 2017 from Sean Henry, a protege of former FBI Director Robert Mueller from 2001 to 2012. That's 11 years. Um, I can I can even do that math. That is a long time to be an understudy for someone. You are going to pick up a lot from that person. Um, so Sean Henry moves over to uh, uh, took a senior position at CrowdStrike, the cyber security firm hired by the DNC in the Clinton campaign, Perkins Coie, y'all, uh, to investigate the cyber intrusions that occurred before the 2016 presidential election. Henry, Sean Henry served as the head of the FBI's Cyber Crime Investigation Unit. So this guy, he, he has no excuse for getting this so wrong, all right? This is not incompetence. This is intentional. The intention was such that they wanted to make Russia uh, a target, and they went for it. Continuing on, the uh, following ex excerpts, uh, well, first, Henry retired in 2020 and took a senior position at CrowdStrike, so 20, 2012, he retires, uh, takes a senior position at CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity firm, and you're talking four years between 2012 and 2016 when all of this starts going down. So, uh, you know, that's, that's enough to get your feet wet, to, you know, really feel like you've got control of the operation that you're running. Um, you should be really sure-footed is, is my point. You shouldn't be going out there uh, half-cocked with, uh, with the claims that can't be backed up. So let's talk about these claims. Uh, the following excerpts from Henry's testimony, uh, this is a, a testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee ranking member uh, Adam Schiff asks Sean Henry, do you know the date on which the Russians exfiltrated data from the DNC? When would it have been? And Sean Henry replies, uh, counsel has reminded me, uh, as it relates to the DNC, we have indicators that data was exfiltrated from the DNC, but we have no indicators that it was exfiltrated. So <laughs> he responds to Adam Schiff's questions, question in this way. He says, we have indicators there was data exfiltrated from the DNC, but we have no indicators that it was exfiltrated and then there's an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. I think that's a, re uh, a redaction, maybe exfiltrated to Russia, blah, 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 blah. Um, there are times when we see data exfiltrated and we can say conclusively, but in this case, it appears it was set up to be exfiltrated, but we just don't have the evidence that's to say that it actually left. <laughs> so it was set up. I don't know, and somebody make a folder and say, you know, hey, hey, Russia, download this. Hey, Russia, read this. <laughs> here's, here's your files, Russia. Is that what they're talking about here? I mean, it seems like if that's what they're talking about, they would actually talk about that because that's way more uh, uh, impugning than, than what's going on here. 
Then Chris Stewart of Utah, Senator from Utah, uh, perks up and, and he says, okay, what about the emails that everyone is so, you know, knowledgeable of? <laughs> were, were there also indicators that they were prepared but not evidence that they were actually exfiltrated? <laughs> and Sean Henry responds, there's not evidence that they actually were exfiltrated. There's circumstantial evidence, but no evidence that they were actually exfiltrated. And let me just say right here, you know, we keep using this 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 word exfiltrated, which is, you know, this is some dodgy language that uh, intelligence community people use. And I find it very I find it very suspect because usually exfiltrated is used to talk about taking military, taking soldiers out of a dangerous situation. So it's always used in this kind of military context. And uh, using this word exfiltrated with regard to data in this context just seems to be more masquerading. You know, you could have used any other word, but you know, they, they chose exfiltrated, whatever. Maybe it's a, their own term of art, but uh, I, I, think that, I think that the word itself, kind of like a word like uh, Russian asset or useful idiot or something like that, it's got such a heavy connotation attached to it that just using the word just seems to be uh, an end in itself. You know, let's make people believe that they're Russians or exfiltrating and that sounds terrible the excellent what does that mean um continuing on a senator from utah delves into this circumstantial situation he, and and he says that he says that circumstantial is less sure than the other evidence you've indicated yeah, so he's calling him out on on this circumstantial evidence thing and mr henry sean henry responds we didn't have a sensor in place that saw data leave. We said that the data left based on the circumstantial evidence. That was the conclusion we made. In other words, they just jumped to a conclusion based on circumstantial evidence. Uh, generally, that's called a conspiracy theory. Like if you're just like a normal person and you don't have the entire weight of the Democratic Party behind you and you make a claim like that, you're going to be called a conspiracy theorist. That's what that is. Uh, continuing on. Uh, and then... Um, as he's responding to the senator from Utah, he says, uh, uh, we said that the data left based on circumstantial evidence. That was the conclusion we made. In answer to a follow-up query in this line of questioning, Sean Henry delivered this classic, quote, sir, I was just trying to be factually accurate, that we didn't see the data leave, but that we believe it left based on what we saw. These are the weakest, these are the weakest possible ways that you can actually make a statement about data being moved from one point to another point. It barely even scratches the surface of, of, of making any sense, actually. It's kind of like a word salad. Well, the article goes on, talks about Aaron Maté's uh, wonderful tweets on this earlier this week, basically just went over what I just talked about. Um, and then... There's a piece 
towards the end where they're talking about transparency, where, where Ray McGovern is pointing out that um, part of the problem, oh, he's talking about exfiltration. There's a problem with the word exfiltration, which I just pointed out. He said that the word can den denote one, transferring data from a computer via the internet, uh, hacking, or number two, copying data physically to an external storage device with the intent to leak it. So in addition to this military connotation of, uh, uh, did you see in movies like Mission Impossible where you go in and you like extract people from a, 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 a military engagement, uh, exfiltration is used with regard to data uh, and it can mean that it was hacked and it could mean that it was leaked, hacked or leaked, one or the other. They seem to be saying that it was set up for a leak because they don't have any evidence that it was sent over a uh, network. If it was sent over a network, by golly, these network guys would be able to prove it and they would, that would be the headline. You know, they would say, here's the trace. Um, Ray McGovern's veteran intelligence professionals for sanity has been reporting for more than three years that metadata and other hard forensic evidence indicate that the DNC emails were not hacked by Russia or anyone else. Rather, they were copied onto an external storage device, probably a thumb drive, and they know this because they, you can see the uh, copy times on all of the files. Very cool reporting on consortium news, uh, Henry further testifies, quote, it appears, it appears that the theft of the DNC emails was set up to be exfiltrated, but we don't have the evidence that says it actually left. You know, like I said, maybe put into a folder or something. Um, remember that intelligence community assessment, the ICA of January 6, 2017, which accused Russia of hacking the DNC? Okay, uh, this is really relevant to this conversation because what that, you know, 17 intelligence agencies say such and such happened, what this conversation says is exactly that that didn't happen. Yeah, so every time we were, we were pointed back to this ICA, back to this intelligence assessment, it was garbage. It was absolute garbage. And, you know, I'm going to leave it there. I want you guys to go read the rest of the piece. The, the point is, use your brain. You don't have to believe everything that's, that's uh, pointed at you with regard to um, things that are going on in the news. Everybody has the ability to do further reading on their own. You have the ability to use your own critical thinking skills, and you have the ability and the responsibility to think for yourself. And we now have the responsibility to clean up this mess that was made with, with Russiagate because they brought us to the brink of confrontation with another world power, and that is nothing to, uh, to mess with. Uh, I don't appreciate another Cold War. I lived through the first one, and it was not very fun. All right. Moving on. I want you guys to enjoy the fact that we've got a little win on our side. And maybe we have a little bit of wind at our back. And uh, here in a second, I've got Matthew Schwartz interview 
Rick Spizak on a big environmental win in Florida. And we'll be right back with that interview. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Matthew Swartz, director of the South Florida Wildlands Association. You know, uh, Matthew, so often we hear uh, bad news, uh, disturbing news about the environment. Well, actually, I saw that you have some good news. Why don't you tell us what's the good news that you just got uh, for the South Florida environmental enthusiasts? All right, well, what basically happened was the final end of a five-year battle that my organization, South Florida Wildlands Association, and many, many folks in Florida, South Florida, have been involved with since July of 2015. Um, July of 2015, it was announced that uh, a company called Cantor Realty had applied to the Florida DEP, the Oil and Gas Division, for a permit to drill an exploratory oil well on the Broward Everglades. And I guess we'll talk about what happened, but uh, from that point until uh, earlier this week, it was an open battle. And finally, um, the uh, state buyout happened. Uh, Cantor Realty transferred 20,000 acres of land to the state, specifically the South Florida Water Management District, and received $16 million in return, basically $800 an acre. And that oil well that he was planning to build or drill there, along with any other oil wells that uh, could have gone in had he found any oil in there, are now a thing of the past. So that's a good news. I mean, we don't usually get these kind of final solutions to things where everybody walks away and uh, go on to other things. I think the thing that really galvanized people in South Florida, and especially Broward and Miami, was that the site that Cantor had chosen to drill was smack in the middle of the Biscayne Aquifer, and that is a sole source aquifer, of course, for all of Broward County, all the folks in Miami-Dade, um, including all the people out in the Keys, because the well field for the Keys is in Miami-Dade as well, and it's taken out by aqueduct out to the Keys. Um, it's very porous. It's porous limestone. Anything that happened on the well site, a spill, a truck overturning, a pipeline breaking, anything would have gone directly into the aquifer, and it would have traveled. So people were pretty much terrorized about the, the prospect of oil drilling in the middle of their shallow drinking water supplies. Of course, we were also concerned about the Everglades, the fact that the site sits on a canal that drains directly into Everglades National Park, the Shark River Slough. And we had gotten a uh, letter from the Fish and Wildlife Commission, the state Fish and Wildlife Commission, talking about, I forget the number, maybe two dozen listed species a federally and state-listed species that also utilize the property. Everglades snail kite, Everglades mink, all kinds of critters. So uh, we were, you know, everybody was up in arms, everybody was worried, and that's why there's so much relief that this is finished. Matthew, you're much closer to these issues than most of us uh, get a chance to pay attention to. Since you're very involved in this, could you give us an update of some of the other issues we need to know about? 
Well, I would say the two other big issues in our area, and they're kind of interrelated, is new developments happening in southwest Florida and what we call Florida panther habitat of the western Everglades. Um, we often think of the Everglades as that problematic river of grass that comes down from Lake Okeechobee and it doesn't quite get to Florida Bay anymore because it's all bisected by canals and sugar, you know, sugar plantations and millions of people living in the middle of it. But when you go to the western Everglades, that is a slightly different area and it, it's developing later. Um, so whereas Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County is pretty much paved over, that area is in the process of being paved over now. So new developments are going in northwest of the Big Cypress National Preserve, very close to a place called the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge. And the leading cause of, of death for panthers right now is roadkill. We just had two panthers back-to-back killed a few days ago in eastern Collier County, the same area we're putting the subdivisions in, places with names like Rivergrass Village and Hyde Park, um, Longmont, these very picturesque country names for subdivisions in the middle of middle of habitat. Um, the bigger project, I mean, I could project is, of course, what a lot of environmentalists are calling the Roads to Ruin. And the Roads to Ruin is also known as MCORS. That's a state project that was authorized by the Florida legislature last year, signed into law by Governor DeSantis. And it means 320 miles a brand new highway from Collier County all the way to the Florida Georgia border in three different routes. Um, but they all want to connect. And uh, that's going to bring not only the destruction of the highways, but of course, anytime we have a highway in Florida, the area around it doesn't stay vacant for long. New subdivisions go up, strip malls, uh, malls, etc. And more people move in, more runoff, more pollution. Uh, more fragmentation of habitat. I mean, more of what we see. I mean, most people in this area, we live in Southeast Florida. We know what Broward, Palm Beach, and Miami-Dade look like. And it seems like Senator Galvano, who is the Senate president who spearheaded this, thought that that was just perfect to do to the rural parts of Florida, that somehow they're deprived because they weren't partaking um, in all the pleasures of development. Um, I I would say, Rick, what you said about development has had a blind eye. I would say that was probably true for a long time. I think if you talk to Florida residents today, I think everybody's aware of development and overdevelopment. And I'd say it's probably the top environmental you know, problem on people's minds right now. It's not climate change. Um, it's overdevelopment. Everybody feels that. They feel that immediately in their drives to work and the lack of wildlife and um, lack of open spaces, all kinds of ways. Uh, so, you know, one of the other things that we hear about is that development of the highways out uh, on the west side of the state. And, you know, watching uh, hurricane evacuations and knowing how few roads there are, you know, one can almost understand uh, a necessity for some highways going north. Uh, but of course, that can be done well or that can be done poorly. It could plow right through sensitive areas or it could be carefully articulated so that it avoids the worst and most egregious impacts. What are you hearing about the expansion of those roads and uh, do we have any hope that there's going to be done, uh, it's going to be done well and thoughtfully? Right. Well, what's going on right now is there are task forces. So each leg of the highway, so the southern leg is called the Southwest Florida Connector. It goes from Collier to uh, 
uh, I think it was uh, Lakeland, uh, west of Orlando. The next section will go from the current end of the Florida Turnpike to the Suncoast Parkway north of Tampa. And then the Suncoast Parkway itself will be extended all the way to the Florida-Georgia border. So those are the three legs of the uh, MCORS project, and each one has its own task force. And what they're supposed to be doing is planning out routes, uh, routes, however you want to pronounce it, um, to do the least uh, damage. Um, we don't think that's possible because all these areas are rural. Um, and when you build a highway, it inevitably creates development longer. There's no highways that haven't seen that happen. And that's the purpose of them. And I mean, that's the stated purpose of them, according to Senator Galvano, was to bring, he calls it development, we call it sprawl, to the western parts of our state. And that's just, not just habitat loss, that's more water use, that's more runoff, that's also you're covering up the aquifer recharge area so the water can get, can't get back into the aquifers. And this is at a time of sea level rise and climate change where we need to protect and enhance our water resources. Uh, I, you did talk about the hurricane evacuation route, so I want to make a comment about that. We, yeah, we think that that is not, that new highways are not the way to, the best response to an incoming hurricane. First of all, do you remember Irma coming in? At first it was supposed to come along uh, the east coast of the state, then it switched to the central, then it came to the west, and then it actually missed the west coast. And people were crisscrossing everywhere. They didn't know where to go. And that happens a lot. You know, a tiny, tiny curve in a hurricane when it's offshore can mean a difference between it hitting Tampa and, or Melbourne. It can go anywhere. Um, the best solution is high-quality hurricane shelters. I remember working for the Red Cross during Wilma. Um, and running one of their shelters uh, at the Arthur Ashe Middle School in Broward County. And Wilma was knocking roofs off of Broward all over the place. We were just looking out these reinforced windows, looking at it. Uh, hurricane shelters, I mean, obviously that's a problem with COVID, but everything's going to be a problem with COVID. Um, it's a better way to go, and there is a shortage of quality hurricane shelters in many parts of the state. Uh, we see this just, you know, Rick, no matter how you spin it, we see this as a development scheme that the big wealthy landowners that live along the routes of this new highway, wherever it goes, are going to benefit because it gives their new homeowners access to the major cities. There are already in Southwest Florida, we've got Babcock Ranch going in, we've got Ave Maria, these new developments I talked about in Panther Habitat. All of those developments will benefit from being located close to a major highway because it gets to people at the Fort Myers and to Naples and to Tampa. And that's the big uh, negative for prospective home buyers moving into these areas. Oh, it's too far away. We'll be in the middle of nowhere. Um, well, we want that. We want these people to be in the middle of nowhere. We don't see development happening in those areas without the highways and that's what our wildlife need is lack of developed areas. That's the only thing that's going to keep what we have left alive. So this is a big fight. I mean, this, this is 300, I've never fought anything this big, um, 320 miles of new highway. Um, and no, and by the way, I, I just want to add when this was passed in the legislature, there was no needs analysis whatsoever to determine if the highways were needed. There was no environmental assessment whatsoever. It was simply, yeah, it was just, just basically, yeah, why bother with facts? And somebody put forward an amendment. They said, hey, here's an idea. 
why don't we fund it? Why don't we fund a year of research and then come back and decide if we want to build these highways? He said, no, 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 no. That's a waste of time. We're going to go straight through. So what the legislature did was they authorized, A, the construction of the highways, and they, and they authorized Station to go out and sell bonds to, to pay for the construction. So no further steps are needed at this point. As soon as they have the route, whether it's going to be devised by the, the task forces or FDOT picks its own route, FDOT is perfectly free to go out and sell bonds and start uh, raising the money to begin construction, except they're going to have to get federal and other state permits. And if it does get to that point, that's where we're going to have to take the fight. But hopefully, you know, we've got a lot of momentum in our, in our favor right now to uh, stop these things. And I'm hoping it just keeps building. And Governor DeSantis, who came in as the environmental, quote unquote, governor, is going to realize that this is just a big weight around his neck. And he's going to, you know, he's going to call on the legislation to reverse. We send the bill that passed this thing and let's go on to other things. That's how we think it's going to work out. Well, I certainly hope that you're right on that. While it's wonderful that that those uh, wells out in uh, Western Broward are uh, no longer going to be developed. Um, what can you tell us about those uh, the wells up in the Appalachicola area? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and ironically, that was in December of 2019 that six new wells were approved just before uh, Governor DeSantis announced the, the intended buyout of the Cantor Realty property. So that's what kind of triggers me to say, well, the reason they bought out the Cantor property and didn't go forward with it is because of the political pressure from the second biggest county in the state, Broward County, and 25 municipalities passing resolutions and saying, no way is this going to happen. Apalachicola Basin is up in you know the eastern part of the panhandle, and there wasn't a lot of resistance to it there. Um, but the area they're going in, those are six exploratory oil wells. It's in an area called the Dead Lakes and Apalachicola River Basin. This is one of the most, we think about the Everglades in South Florida. This is one of the most beautiful, pristine parts of our state that are left. And I'm just too far away and too overloaded with South Florida issues to have gotten deeply involved in that. But it's, it's agonizing to think of them doing this. I mean, this is very few people in South Florida know that area. Um, but it is it is gorgeous and um, very rich in habitat. The Apalachicola uh, uh, Bay and all that area around it is outstanding Florida waters. And this is just completely incompatible with oil drilling, with the drilling fluids that go in everything. I got to ask you a question regarding the approval of those wells in Apalachicola. A state official said basically there is no um, possibility of state oversight of that matter. The state has uh, basically nothing to say about this development in a very delicate wetland and water supply. It is what, you know, she is somewhat, I'm not going to, I'm not going to completely disagree with her because I've been fighting many oil wells for many years here in South Florida. And the way the laws are written, there's some truth to that, that the law does not say thou shalt not drill in the habitat of endangered species. Thou shalt not drill through the water supply of a community. Thou shalt not drill in the habitat for endangered species, etc. Wetlands, everything is fair game. They're just supposed to be careful when they do it. And that is a weakness in Florida law. Um, 
that as I, I know the article you're referring to, he says there was no good reason for us to deny the permit. That's exactly what the appellate court judges, because we didn't talk about that when it came to Cantor. Cantor, the DEP denied the permit, but that didn't stop Cantor. He took it to administrative court. The administrative law judge sided with them, but DEP, again, who wrote the final opinion, did not. And he took it to appellate court, and the appellate judges agreed with him immediately. They said, look, you own the land, you own the mineral rights, you're granted access in your easement to those mineral rights. There's nothing in Florida law that says you should be denied an opportunity to drill for your property. DEP, what are you doing? Give them the permit. That's how it went. I mean, we went to the oral hearing. We had submitted a brief in that case. I knew within the first 30 seconds of the judge, the, the lead judge speaking that we lost. Um, because if you mineral rights is like property, I mean, you own it. And Florida law does not take away that right. That's really what it comes down to. So it's a tough situation. Fortunately, fortunately, even though they've drilled holes all through many, many parts of Florida, few of them have come up with anything in them. I mean, there's no, there's only a few places in Florida where they actually have found commercial deposits of oil. And that one of those is inside the big Cypress. It's called the Sunnyland trend. The other one is in the far Western panhandle, um, Jay or Escambia County and Santa Rosa County. So those are the two producing well fields in those, in those areas. Where they're drilling, where Cholo is going to drill in the eastern panhandle, they've never hit anything there. Um, they've never hit anything anywhere else in the peninsula. So hopefully, since we didn't stop those, um, they'll go ahead and drill and they'll find dry holes um, and hopefully not do any damage along the way. But uh, if I had clones, I would definitely work on closing up the loopholes in Florida law to somehow um, – preclude drilling in these absolutely sensitive uh, wetlands, the problem, again, is ownership of mineral rights. You have to, you know, when you say tell somebody that owns these mineral rights for how long, how do you take their right away? It's, it, it gets very complicated. It gets very, very complicated. I'm not a lawyer. I don't really want to. But it... Well, maybe at some point uh, we need to uh, rewrite the laws so that uh, community interests, water supply interests, uh, water source interests have uh, have impact on how development will be. Uh, depending on the kindness of developers is uh, seems to me to be uh, a terribly unproductive uh, way of looking at it. Well, development, I mean, you could deny, I mean, in development, you've got zoning. So there are cases where a developer owns a piece of land um, and says, well, he goes into a county commission and says, I want to rezone my land from agricultural to residential, and it's denied. That can happen because there's no right to have your land rezoned. In this particular case with oil rights, you know, we need, I suppose we need a test case um, where not the agency, as happened in Cantor, but a judge says, yes, the right to protect water resources or wetlands or wildlife will trump um, the mineral rights and see how that works out. But that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened. I mean, when you look at the history of oil drilling in Florida, I mean, people who apply for wells, as long as they're meeting 
the state codes and that those state codes deal with do you have enough are you going to be covering the the drilling platform with plastic do you have enough tanks on 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 your on your pad to hold all the fluids that are needed to do the drilling and to pull up and to hold the fluids that are getting pulled up out of the ground because it's not just if they do find oil it's oil in florida doesn't come up as pure black oil it comes up mostly with brine it's they're drilling down about I mean, you got a picture geology about two miles deep most of what's coming up is produced water that's a very heavy brine solution much much saltier than seawater and the oil is in there so they have to separate the brine from the seawater i mean the, the brine from the oil use shaker tanks to do that and then the brine gets pumped back down into the boulder zone about 2500 feet below our feet where much of our wastewater goes but that brine is highly toxic on the surface. It would kill anything it came in contact with. Um, so, and it could also, of course, pollute uh, surface water, drinking water supplies. But um, we, don't have a, we don't have that case. We don't have a case where a judge, whether it's a state judge, uh, administrative law judge, has ruled that the, you know, the need to protect uh, safeguard water resources or anything else, somebody's mineral rights. It hasn't happened yet. So when we get that case, um, maybe we'll we'll be in better shape. But right now we're really not. Right now we're kind of at the mercy of people that own mineral rights that decide that they want to go out and see what we got. See, so let's take a look. Well, Matthew, thank you so very much for sharing some time with us. We really appreciate the update, and uh, especially thanks for that good news. And uh, stay in the fight, buddy. We really need your help. Thanks again. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, that's Matthew Schwartz of the South Florida Wildlands Association. You can find him online, find him on Facebook, and please support an organization that's defending your habitat. Thanks so much. And Thank you, wow, Rick. You guys Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Fantastic. I love hearing good news, and uh, we don't get enough of that. Uh, turning now, we've got Janine Moloff on the line. This is Janine's chance. Here we go. Hey, Janine, do we get you on the line? Yes, you do. Hi, Brooke. I'm Hi, just welcome. Gonna, I'm glad you're to get where you're with us. Um, I'm just going to get straight to it, okay? Let's do it. Okay. So this is really a continuation of whether or not, you know, of this question, is Donald Trump uh, really crim- criminally responsible for coronavirus deaths, Okay. And what I did was I looked at a um, an interview on the Intercept Deconstructed podcast by Mady Hassan. Now, before I start that, I want to say that as of today, the COVID death rate in the U.S. has surpassed 80,000 people. So is Trump guilty of not only negligent homicide, but is he guilty possibly of genocide by willful neglect? The answer appears to be yes, in my opinion, But um, let's look at the legal opinion of a former top federal prosecutor 
named, uh, namely Glenn Kirshner, who's also been a legal analyst on MSNBC. He was interviewed by Mehdi Hassan on the Deconstructed podcast recently for The Intercept. Now, as of this program, the Associated Press also released a report that documented how the Trump administration is further censoring medical experts, including his own CDC director, Dr. Redfield. This in conjunction with the whistleblower complaint filed by Dr. Rick Bright shows a system-wide pattern of planned um, negligence regarding the medical supply chain, including the present PPE shortage. So as the deaths from COVID-19 mount, we have experts that are increasingly pointing to Trump's what we're think, calling willful negligence. That is the cause for the pandemic's intensity for how it's exacerbated. And again, MSNBC legal analyst Glenn Kirshner was interviewed by Mady Kassan. Now, a little few words about Kirshner. Uh, Kirshner was in the Army. Uh, he was in JAG, uh, which is a legal arm, and he served as an Army prosecutor. After six more years of active duty service, Kirshner was discharged honorably, and in 1994, joined the U.S. Attorney's, uh, U.S. United States Attorney for the District of Columbia office as a federal prosecutor and assistant U.S. Attorney. He joined the USAO's homicide section, which not coincidentally was led by Robert Mueller, who is also a Republican. And after a few of those assignments, he joined uh, the homicide section. He prosecuted lengthy RICO trials in D.C. federal court, uh, as well as murder, conspiracy, and obstruction of justice cases in Superior Court. He's prosecuted more than 50 murder trials, and he served as the deputy chief of the homicide section for four years and chief of the homicide section from 04 to 10, and he retired from that office in 2018. So... He has several notable cases, but we're just going to get straight into it. And so Mehdi Hassan interviewed him, and he asked him, you know, what is Trump really guilty of? And, excuse me. Hold on one second here. Lost my place there, sorry. Um, So he said, what is he really guilty of? And Kurt. Kirshner started out with he acted in a grossly negligent way, and mainly because he failed to act, and that was a product of gross negligence. So Hassan asked him, could the president really one day be prosecuted and put on trial for his role that, you know, in making this crisis much more deadly? And, you know, he gave some listings in terms of what like, for instance, Congressman, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro said, um, you know, in terms of how this has increased. And Hassan said, you know, Mehdi Hassan did acknowledge that Trump's not responsible for the existence of COVID. We, you know, nobody's saying that. But he is responsible for the bungled response. And since the, you know, since the virus has been in the United States, at least since January, uh, quite a few experts believe the number of deaths we're seeing and the rapid spread um, the high, among the highest on the planet, actually, is a direct result of Trump's negligence, and it's willful. So Mehdi Hassan also spoke to Harvard epidemiologist um, Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding. So I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth here a little bit. And, you know, Hassan asked, do you think that Trump and his uh, cohorts have blood on their hands? And Dr. Feigl-Dean said yes. And 
basically, you know, Eric Feigelding also said Boris Johnson's own health minister, you know, came down with COVID. And the fact that the U.S. is neglecting testing and the U.S. is frozen testing, that's going to result in an almost threefold higher multiplication of cases. So Hassan asked me, can we see at this point that there are people dead who would otherwise be alive had our government and Johnson's government acted differently? And this epidemiologist said, yes, I'm pretty confident that's the case. And, you know, again, to give you an example, Chuck Todd asked Joe Biden, do you think there's blood on Trump's hands? And Biden answered, I think that's a little too harsh, which is ludicrous. So getting back to um, what's been said here, you know, Trump tried to, as we know, tried to compare this to the flu. We know COVID-19 is not the flu. It is a very deadly form of viral pneumonia. So Hassan also said, don't let, you know, Trump gaslight the country. Uh, the facts are the facts. And one of the reasons we have such a high death toll, uh, even though we're doing some social distancing and testing has increased a bit, is because of his negligence. Uh, and just it's just ridiculous. South Korea handled it very differently. So we're going to get back to this right now. We're going to go down to what, um, you know, what basically Kirshner had to say. And so Kirshner, you know, he, first of all, Hassan pointed out the fact that when Kirshner tweeted about Trump's negligence, he attracted a lot of hate and attention. And um, Kirshner tweeted whether Trump could be prosecuted for negligent homicide and or voluntary or involuntary manslaughter. And, you know, basically what what Kirshner had to say is this. After 30 years as a federal prosecutor, um, first as an Army JAG and then an assistant U.S. attorney in D.C., um, he handled quite a few murder cases as I went over. And he said, first he said, I'm going to describe what the issues are. And he says, he's not, he's not going to talk about first degree premeditated murder or second degree um, or even voluntary manslaughter. What Kushner's talking about in terms of Donald Trump's potential liability is the idea that it's a, a low level of homicide, but it's involuntary manslaughter. And then he went on to describe why. He talked about the three elements of involuntary manslaughter. And this element's just a fancy word for fact. So first, a person has to act in a grossly negligent way, uh, or in this instance, fail to act, and that failure was a byproduct of, of gross negligence. But they had to act in a grossly negligent way. Number two, their conduct had to reasonably, in, based their contact, had to involve serious bodily injury or death as a product, a result of that grossly negligent act or the failure to act. And three, that that negligence caused the death of another. Now, Krishner also explained that causation can be tricky because uh, you usually think of someone firing a gun at someone or stabbing another person or strangling them. But that's not the way the law, criminal law specifically, or the law of homicide, as he calls it, defines causation. Legal definition of causation in the law is what he goes over next. So Kushner's laying basically the, the foundation for a case against Trump, criminal case. So causation law, according to Kushner, is defined as, quote, conduct that is a substantial factor in bringing about the death of another. And 
he thinks Donald Trump's conduct of lying to the American people and downplaying the risk of COVID, giving them information that was incorrect or misleading that they use for their everyday decisions, put them in harm's way, quote, that enhance their chances of contracting the virus. And Fisher goes on to say that that was a major factor in the increase in infections and the increase, increased death rate. So now he goes into how Trump's failure to act did constitute gross negligence. And so this is, he says, kind of unusual when a perpetrator fulfills both theories of liability uh, because that perpetrator acted in what he described as a grossly negligent way and he failed to act. And that failure was a, a product of gross negligence. Usually you have to prove one or the other. In this instance, though, Trump committed both of these in both of these factors and he actually committed involuntary manslaughter in both those ways and so Hassan kind of countered with you know he had Hassan had talked to a couple other retired federal prosecutors but off the record and skeptical about the case that Krishner's making and uh, Hassan said these up uh, these unnamed federal prosecutors one was quoted saying Quote, if you're seriously talking about prosecution, the real issue here will be one of causation. You'd have to line up causation for each individual death you wanted to indict for. There's no group crime here, end quote. And another unnamed prosecutor who wouldn't come forward said, he's a retired prosecutor, he still wouldn't come forward. Quote, a prosecutor would need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump's action or inaction actually caused someone's death. And I don't just don't see how one could do that here. Maybe there's a civil suit, but not a criminal prosecution, end quote. Now, Kushner's response to issues raised by other prosecutors off the record, he just said, look, that's, that's, we have to leave that up to our criminal justice system, okay? We've got some gatekeepers here. And so we, you know, we can still investigate. And he listed three gatekeepers. He said, first, the grand jury, if you form one, is the first gatekeeper. Um, and they look in to see was there is there grounds for um, for charges to be brought forward. The judge is the next gatekeeper. And Kirshner explained, you know, if, if there wasn't found uh, found footing for the case, the judge wouldn't let it go through. And then the jury's the final gatekeeper. Okay, and you know, he just basically said that just because you think it might not end in a in a prosecution doesn't mean you shouldn't investigate and pursue it. So, you know, Hassan says, how do you link Trump beyond reasonable doubt to an individual death, especially if you can't do it to a group of people? And Kirshner said, well, yeah, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was a substantial factor. Um, and he says the cause, the main cause, but it was just a substantial factor. So Kirshner it gives an analogy to explain. He says, okay, people a lot of times are familiar with this ghost ship story, ghost ship warehouse fire in Oakland, California in 2016. There were two guys that owned and operated a converted warehouse. They turned it into an artist space and they could display their artwork and such, and some of the artists were, were sleeping there as well. But the building was in really horrible shape. It, it failed to meet any of the safety codes. And as a result, a fire got started and the fire resulted in like between 36 or 39 people dying in the fire. Now, Kushner explains the fire wasn't a product of arson or anything. The owners 
basically of this warehouse did nothing to directly kill anybody. They didn't start a fire. They didn't close the doors so that the people that were in the building couldn't escape. But their conduct, because they had a warehouse in a, in a substandard condition that was dangerous, that put people at risk, and that was a substantial factor in bringing about those deaths. And that in that case, um, the owners were indicted for, I think he, he said either 36 or 39 counts of involuntary manslaughter. And Kushner goes on to say it's a similar principle for Trump because he's let this virus run roughshod um, like a fire through an old warehouse. And you also have examples of corrupt intent, you know, of motive because Trump has said many things publicly, you know, Things like, you know, he wanted his numbers to stay low. He didn't return various governor's phone calls. Um, you know, he was refusing to help them because, quote, they weren't sufficiently nice to him. And he goes on to explain, Kushner says, look, this is why you have criminal investigations, all right? We don't have, you don't have a slam dunk necessarily, but you at least have to take the first step, you know, to investigate and see if there is criminal conduct. And then Hassan asked, is there any precedent for something like this, you know, in U.S. presidential history or even at lower levels of government where elected officials were held criminally accountable? And Kushner couldn't think of any. And, you know, he said, look, we know that we can't do anything. We can't criminally prosecute Trump while he's in office, and that's because of the OLC uh, off the legal counsel memo, which he called horrific. And we've discussed this on this program. And that's the memo that says you can't indict a sitting president. You know, not even if you shoot somebody as Trump bragged about on Fifth Avenue. And, you know, Kirshner said that's a position that the DOJ lawyers uh, took and in a Second Circuit of Court appeals an argument. But then Kirshner went on to say, okay, so maybe there's no precedent. But he explained how the only way we can have a precedent, sometimes you don't have one, but guess what? And you you prosecute, and, and that's the first time that something like this is prosecuted. And Kushner made the point that if we always are required to wait to prosecute, you know, to wait for precedent in order to prosecute, then a lot of novel cases would never be prosecuted. And this is a novel case, so he's saying, look, there's no precedent for this, but guess what? It's still on the surface appears that criminality is involved. And then he was asked about the distinction between state and federal law. And Kushner said he can see charges being brought in civil suits as well, not only federally, but on more local or state levels in jurisdictions where people have died because of his gross negligence. Um, and so Kushner predicted what he thought would happen. He's, he said that he thought when Trump leaves office that the people in the GOP will attempt to make a modified supremacy clause argument, and that's dangerous. And he said they'll try and say that even though the supremacy clause in the Constitution doesn't directly apply in terms of sovereign immunity, they're going to say this is a federal issue, and a former president quote, cannot be made to stand up as a defendant in 50 states and defend himself in all these criminal cases, end quote. So they're going to make this, there's going to be this modified supremacy clause argument saying that a former president can't be prosecuted in all these different jurisdictions, but that's hogwash. 
And then they talk about, and this is a related case, the PG&E case, um, where Pacific Gas and Energy, where the company pled guilty to manslaughter, and none of the executives were prosecuted or jailed. And the utility company known as PG&E, they accepted criminal prosecution because they helped start, they started the, they're responsible for starting the deadliest wildfire in California's history, what they call the Campfire of 2018. It killed 85 people. The company pled guilty to manslaughter. Again, as I said before, the no executives were prosecuted or jailed for the crime. PG&E just agreed to pay a $3.5 million penalty, and that's the statutory maximum for California. And, you know, Hassan asked, isn't that part of the problem that you can go after a corporation, but you can't go after these individuals that made these corporate decisions? And isn't that tougher? And he goes, yeah, it is tougher, okay? There's, you know, you have a collective criminal action, he called it, uh, made by, for instance, a board of directors. And... You know, the truth is, feds would rather get some money than put these people in jail. So, getting back to this, he says, okay, Donald Trump, you know, there's going to, if you try and say that he's criminally responsible for these COVID deaths due to willful negligence, there's going to be people that say, look, you know, isn't this, you know, partisan? And, you know, he explained, well, you know, people will say that there's something he called, Victor's justice, all right? And it's not just pejorative. Um, Victor's justice, according to Kushner, quote, is loosely defined. It's a means when the party that comes into power prosecutes the party that has lost power just for sheer revenge value, for the partisan value of it. But Kushner went on to say, quote, it's not Victor's justice if you have crimes being committed that the party in power is unwilling to address while they are in power, end quote. So there's an example he uses. He says, let's say somebody commits a bank robbery. It's a federal offense. And let's say the person who does the bank robbery is a really good friend and a high-dollar donor of Donald Trump. So Bill Barr, the AG, Attorney General, he's Trump's protector, says, I'm not going to authorize federal charges against this bank robber. And you could think the Mike Flynn case, for instance. Now, the question of mine is this. Wouldn't it be improper for the next administration to ignore that case? Would it be improper for the next administration to prosecute the bank robber when he's no longer being protected by Bill Barr? And he said, that's not revenge. That's just plain old justice, okay? Because the previous administration didn't want to prosecute uh, somebody who was a big contributor. Doesn't mean that person shouldn't have been prosecuted. And he, he says, you know, and to quote Kirchner, he says, we can't decline to do the right thing for fear of how the wrong people will criticize us for it, end quote. You know, basically we've got this issue, again, of Trump's criminality. And we've, you know, Kirchner mentioned this horrible DOJ guidance that says you can't indict a sitting president. So Kirchner. Kushner explained what he saw as the alleged Trump crimes. And he said, the crimes that have been committed, that he sees hiding, as he puts it in plain sight. Um, Kushner says Trump uh, basically is guilty of conspiracy to defraud, um, obstruct justice, obstruct Congress. There's several statutory crimes. He witness tampered. There was a tweet in real time with Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch when she was testifying, 
Um, he was tweeting, and Kushner said, look, as a career prosecutor, you're trying to, as he calls it, chill ongoing testimony of a witness. That's witness tampering under 18 U.S.C. 1512. He bribed President Zelensky, committed campaign finance violations with Michael Cohen, made false statements to the FBI during the Mueller probe. He's been an accessory after the fact of all people to Vladimir Putin by, uh, in terms of the standing up in Helsinki and giving him aid and comfort. And to quote Kushner, he said, that is the crime of accessory after the fact under 18 U.S.C. Section 3. And, you know, he also went on to say, look, the Mueller report is basically a blueprint for future prosecutions. It just is. And he also explained that we're closer to something like that. Federal District Judge Reggie Walton has a copy of the unredacted Mueller report, but he had to fight A.G. Barr for it. He practically, according to him, had to wrestle it out of Barr's hands. Um, and so and it, it, the judge issued a scathing opinion. Uh, and now he has that unredacted Mueller report. It is a FOIA suit. And it basically the facts will first be released to BuzzFeed and Epic and the Electronic Privacy Information Center. And that's evidence that could be used in January 2020. So, you know, once again, there's quite a bit of responsibility here. In conclusion, I would say this. Given the pattern of willful negligence by Trump and his enablers in the GOP, we have to ask ourselves as a people, do we believe in what has been quaintly called actual rule of law? If there was ever a case study documenting the need to strike down the legal invention of sovereign immunity, which, by the way, is a doctrine that was never mentioned in the actual Constitution, in addition to a doctrine that deprives us of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, then the administration of Donald Trump is that case. And COVID, the COVID-19 response is a major factor. Uh, without question, the world has witnessed an abject horror as Trump allows a massive culling of the population through a pattern of willful negligence. We have documented on this program in earlier shows that our medical personnel are being routinely deprived of PPE, of personal protective equipment, and that the COVID testing regimen has been basically limited to, and, and to the rich and well-connected. At the time of this show, over 80,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 since January, February. I'll say that again. At the time of the show, over 80,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. There is presently no concerted plan for mass testing, protective prevention or treatment. There is no plan for contact tracing. Workers are being forced back to their places of employment upon pain of losing their meager unemployment benefits. To add further insult to injury, the GOP absolutely refuses to hold this president accountable. In addition to prosecuting Trump, in my opinion, every member of the GOP who has either supported this administration during what can only be called a period of criminal, willful neglect, and every member of the GOP who has remained silent should be criminally prosecuted as accessories to Trump's many future counts of negligent homicide. There's no question about it. Trump would not be able to get away with this without his enablers, and that includes my two U.S. senators, Roy Blunt and Josh Hawley. We are suffering through what, could be, what would be commonly called a type of genocide. In fact, it is, in fact, what's called a politicide, which describes a mass slaughter due to actions or equivalent negligence of the political system. 
80,000 people did not have to die. No one else should have to die to protect Trump's sick ego or his greedy corporate acolytes. If there ever was a time to demand a Nuremberg-type investigation and prosecution, this is it. And once again, I'm going to, that's my report. I'm going to be presenting more evidence as I find it. Uh, it. We know for a fact Trump would not be able to get away with this if he didn't have enablers in the GOP. You know, every member of, every Republican member of Congress has literally refused to hold this man accountable. And in another time period, with another Congress, this wouldn't be happening. Even Richard Nixon didn't get away with this. This is obviously criminal negligence and misdirection. And at this point in time, we need to hold not only Trump accountable, we need to hold every member of the GOP, every cabinet post, every aide, every attorney he has on retainer, including members of the DOJ. I believe that AG Barr uh, should be impeached just on basically his refusal. He dropped the case against Mike Flynn, somebody who more than once pled guilty. Uh, this is something that has to happen, and we need to go after every member of Congress, both houses, especially the GOP, that, is, that has refused to hold Donald J. Trump accountable. This is far well, worse Janine, than 9-11. 80,000 people are dead because of this man's negligence. That's right. And <clears throat> I went and grabbed the URL for that particular interview. That's Mehdi Hassan, interview with Glenn Kirshner. <clears throat> On The Intercept, that's from April 2, 2020. So that yeah. link is in the show notes. And you know, sovereign immunity is a uh, – a lot of people aren't aware of it. I do know that at a state level, at least in Florida, if you run up against sovereign immunity, like let's say a family member uh, <clears throat> is uh, dies under negligence of a state mm -hmm. agency, what you do is you can go before the state legislature and um, try to pass a, a bill – that is specific or pass a law right. that is specific to that case. I don't know if that's yeah. a, a remedy that's available at the it, federal it, level. It, you know, it's not. And, and the fact is very simply sovereign immunity is basically saying that the pre, especially at the federal level, the president's above the law. And in a democracy, there should be no sovereign immunity. You can't have right. rule of law that says everyone's equal and then say, oh, except for the guy at the top office. You just can't. Right. And it's a, it's a, uh, a relic from the British crown. It has to go. Yep, exactly. Um, and we are going to get rid of it. I, uh, you know, we have a lot to do. We've got a, a, a lot to clean up, hopefully, uh, uh we'll be able to do that sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, thank you so much for this uh, amazing report again. And um, folks, go check out Mehdi Hassan's interview on Deconstructed. Uh, it's at The Intercept from April 2, 2020. Uh, really good stuff. And uh, these are big, big issues. You know, we're talking yeah. about 
by the time everything is said and done, this 80,000 number, 80,000 people dead, that's going to be doubled. And uh, just in the last few yeah. seconds of the show, Janine, I want to I want to say thank you. We'll see you again next week. And Certainly. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank our listeners, and we're going to get that chat function up. And uh, in the meantime, just keep keeping on. Uh, we'll drop another PNN extra this week uh, for sure. And we will see you guys on the flip side definitely next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.